OK, so a um, couple announcements. We have a test on Wednesday. So in our next class meeting, we'll have a test in class. Um, it's open book, open note. So feel free to bring whatever books or notes you have. Uh, I will have uh, my copy of uh, the three textbooks that are in the syllabus. Um, so I'll have those textbooks available for you. If you don't have all the textbooks and you want to have access to them, it'll be sort of like a library. You can check it out for a couple minutes to look through it. I really don't think having the textbooks is going to be all that beneficial to you. I didn't peruse a textbook and find a paragraph and try to write a, a question based on that. Um, so you can have it as a reference. Uh, basically, everything that I asked about will be uh, based off of things we lectured about, things from the notes. Um, to give you a sense of what the test is like, I posted last year's exam on the web page. If you go into assignments and exams, you can find that. It's listed as a practice test. Um, it's actually last year's test. So I'm not going to post the solutions to that. Okay. So you have the test, not the solutions. Um, the content is roughly the same. We covered a little bit different uh, amount of material in 2008 when I taught it. So um, you may notice there's a few things on there that we haven't quite uh, had time to cover. But um, that'll give you a sense then of what the test should be like. I said if you wanted to get your homework that's due Wednesday done early, you could turn it in and get the solutions. So I have solutions. Um, I have them printed out in my office. So after class, if you want to come with me to my office, you can exchange um, if you want to turn it in early. Um, if you don't have it done yet, uh, at the beginning of class on Wednesday, you can turn it in and get the solutions. I'll have hard copies. Um, or alternatively, if sometime between now and then you finish it, you can email it to me. So scan it and email it. And when I receive the email, I will make the link available for you to download on the website. Okay, so those are your options. Uh, does anybody have any questions about the test, about what to expect? Wait. You can bring a calculator. Yeah, that would be useful. Uh, there will be some numerical values you'll have to calculate. Um, so it'll cover up through what we covered today. So today, I hope to spend uh, a bit of time reviewing, although we still have some new material to cover today. So uh, we'll split our time that way. Were there any questions from last time or uh, class material you wanted to go over? There are two sign conventions, and depending on which one you use, you get different results. So uh, this is the grading equation. And the way that I like to figure out the sign convention is literally to figure it out. Um, if you have a grading and you have light that's incident at an angle theta, uh, what direction would the zeroth order B. Zeroth order just means a specular reflection. Right? So this is theta 0. So the first thing to check is that uh, if we plug in m equals 0, our equation should give us this diagram. And so if I say sine theta i minus sine theta m, um, if m equals 0, that's saying 
theta in equals theta m. That's probably the way most people would interpret this. That's the law of reflection. Okay, so in this definition, I'm defining my diffraction angle on the opposite side of the normal as the input. Okay, which means if I have a diffracted beam that is like that, its angle is going to be negative in this equation, meaning this term is going to be positive. And so would the order of that, would that m be po positive 1 or negative 1 if that were the first order? We have to be positive. So so there you go. There's a convention. Okay. Now the problem is, depending on the textbook you look in, you may see a minus sign or you may see a plus sign. Right? So if that's a plus sign, what that's doing is it's just changing your definition for which side of uh, the normal you're measuring diffracted angles with respect to. Does that make sense? So in, in the device you use the, for the plus side, does it mean the, the other side is just the, the plus or no? Oh, do I use the plus side in the slides? Yeah. OK. So yes, then in that case, all angles are measured on the same side of the normal as the incident. Right, so the zeroth order, if the specular reflection then would be at minus theta. Right, if that's plus theta, that would be minus theta. And using a plus sign here, those would cancel and give me zero. Thank you for pointing that out. It's something I didn't didn't address when I went over gradings. Any other questions or issues that came up? Okay, so. Um, for the maximum resolution power for, for grading, so. Yeah. Our max is still the same for the. Uh, Litro. Right? Yeah, so Litro configuration. And uh, I skipped over that just based on the time we had. Uh, there is a slide in the notes that uh, mentions this term, Littrow configuration. And what it means is uh, the input beam, if you arrange the input angle such that the, a diffracted angle, one of the diffracted orders, is going right back along the path that the input beam took. That's called Littrow configuration. A couple reasons why that's an interesting incident angle to work at. One is that this acts then like a mirror at one particular wavelength. Right? So if you require theta i equal theta m, then you'll get that retroreflection. And let's check. If I'm using the plus sign, I'm measuring all the angles on the same side of the normal. So if these angles are the same, then the diffracted, the nth order diffracted angle is along the incident angle. So if that's the case, so we call that the 
nth order literal configuration. So if that's the case, I can um, write the grading equation like this. And so what you can see is, for a particular incident angle, there will only be one wavelength that satisfies that condition. It's like a wavelength selective mirror. That's often how it's used. There's another reason that gratings are often used at this particular angle. It's a little less obvious, but if you come in with a round beam, and you project that beam shape onto this grating, you're going to illuminate an elliptical region on the grating because it's not at normal incidence. If you view that elliptical region from some angle other than the incident angle, what you see is a squash, is, is an ellipse. Uh, if you view it along the direction of the incident angle, that ellipse projected under the direction you're viewing is a circle, which is a way of saying that the diffracted beam, if the input is circular, the diffracted beam will be squashed, it'll be into an ellipse at any direction other than litro or specular reflection. So for maintaining beam transverse shape characteristics, it's often desirable to use a grating at litro configuration. And our equation for the maximum resolution depended on the order of the diffracted beam and the number of grooves that are illuminated. And that's independent of the incident angle. So it doesn't matter whether that's for litro or not. In this, yes. Because this is always, yeah, just take the absolute value of m. OK, so that was a bit about uh, gratings. Gratings are interesting because they're used in spectrometers uh, in the same, for the same basic function that a prism is used in a spectrometer to split light based on wavelength. Um, and that's one way that you can differentiate uh, different wavelength components in a beam or in a, in a light field. It's not the only way. Um, the other technique is through interferometry. Interferometry involves splitting a beam of light, recombining it, and looking at the amplitude of the recombined beam. The amplitude of the recombined beam will be a function of the, the phase difference between the beams add up coherently, that phase difference is a function of wavelength. So if you're interested in observing or measuring the wavelength or the wavelength components of a beam, you can use interferometry to do so with very high precision. So let's look a little bit about how that's done. Um,
Here's a simple interferometer. This is a two-beam interferometer where we have beam splitters that split the light into two beams. Those beams uh, get recombined at the second beam splitter. And this is just a generalized version of a Michelson interferometer, which is probably the most famous interferometer. Um, this is called a Mach-Zender interferometer. And here we have a separate beam splitter to separate the light and a separate one to recombine. But if you turn these mirrors such that you fold this light back on the input, this becomes a Michelson interferometer. So the equations that we'll, we'll see for this are all valid for a Michelson as well. And we can look at the output amplitude here as a function of the input amplitude and the wavelength of the light by tracing the phasers that represent the light field as they go along these two paths. So what we have is some input here, which I'll call E in. That's the amplitude of the input field. And then after the light uh, transmits through this beam splitter, we get a factor of I times T. And then as the light travels a distance L2, we get a phase shift of E to the, and I've used a convention where my phase shifts are negative, E to the minus I 2 pi L2 over lambda. Okay, so 2 pi over lambda is K. K times the length is a phase. So this is the phase shift of the light going to here. And then there's a reflection. So we have an I times T times an R times this phase. That's for the light going in path L2. For the light that goes in arm 1, we have the same basic expression, except first we have a reflection and then we have a transmission. And we have a phase shift of uh, 2 pi L1 over lambda. So we have this term, we also have this term. These represent the two different paths the light can take. And when I add up the two paths, the phasers representing the two paths, I get the total output phaser. Okay, so um, it's probably worth expanding on what's written there in the notes a little bit, just to show you the steps if you haven't seen this before. This expression here, which is actually missing an I, although it won't have any any effect on our output. We can take this sum of exponents and express it as a uh, trigonometric argument. And so to do that, I'm going to define two quantities. Um, L bar, that's the average length of the arms. So that's L1 plus L2 over 2. And delta L, which will be say L2 minus L1. Okay, if I do that, I can write L1 as the average length minus uh, delta L over 2. And I can write L2 as the average length plus delta L over 2. 
And I'll substitute those values in for my phaser output. see that there's a common factor in these two exponents. It's the minus i 2 pi L bar over lambda. And so I can factor that out. What I'm left with inside the parentheses looks, especially if I divide by 2 and multiply by 2, looks a lot like a cosine. In fact, it is cosine of 2 pi delta lambda over delta L over 2 lambda. So my output field has an amplitude that depends on the input field. It has a phase shift that depends on how far it is from this beam splitter to this beam splitter on average. And then it has a term that affects the amplitude based on the difference in the path length. That's the interference term. And that can be a maximum if this is a maximum, I have constructive interference. Right? If this is zero, I have destructive interference. And if I want to just talk about the intensity of the output, that's uh, proportional to the amplitude squared. And when I take the absolute value, I lose terms like this and this i. And you'll notice if I have a 50-50 beam splitter, then r squared is 1 half half of the power. Remember, little r is the field reflectivity. r squared is the power reflectivity. So a 50-50 beam splitter is one that reflects 50% of the power. So r squared is 0.5. t squared is 0.5. 4 times a half times a half is 1. So for a 50-50 beam splitter, the output is just sinusoidal between 1 and 0, or between a maximum
looks like this. goes from a maximum of 1 to a minimum of 0. Every time delta L increases by, let's see, a by half a wavelength. So that's sort of the conventional description of how an interferometer works. And physically, if you set this up, you shine a laser beam in, and then you change the arm lengths. You will see the output intensity cycle through these fringes. Now, you could change the arm length, or you could change the wavelength and produce the same effect, right? Because it's really it's the length of the arms relative to a wavelength that matter. And so if you keep the arm lengths fixed, but instead change the wavelength, you would also see the output cycle through these fringes. So this could be plotted as uh, delta lambda rather than delta L. And so that's an example of how you could differentiate between two different closely spaced wavelengths based on the output power that the wavelengths produced going through an interferometer. So an interferometer has a free spectral range, just like a uh, grading spectrometer does. This free spectral range tells us how much change in wavelength we can get uh, before our interference pattern, in this case, repeats itself. So if we want to um, plot this not as a change in length, but instead a change in wavelength, then we'd expect that a beam with different wavelength components, um, each component would produce uh, a different amount of interference. And how much would the wavelength have to change before we go from, say, constructive interference to constructive interference again? And so if we note that the number of wavelengths that fit inside this path length difference delta L, so delta L equals m times lambda, if that's the, if m is the number that fit inside a path length delta L when this, the uh, output is constructive interference, for example, the next time it's constructive interference, is when there's one additional or one less full wavelength that fit inside. So let's consider the case where there's one fewer wavelengths that fit inside. The wavelength must be longer in that case in order for fewer of them to fit. And the system will be resonant again when the wavelength has shifted by one free spectral range. So we'll write the wavelength as lambda plus delta lambda FSR. And we can solve. Um, these two equations for delta lambda and find that the free spectral range measured in wavelength is lambda squared over delta L. So 
for, let's say, one micron light, near-infrared light, a path length difference of, let's make it easy, say one meter, which is certainly reasonable to do on a tabletop scale experiment, the free spectral range of an interferometer would be um, 10 to the minus 12 meters, okay, a picometer. So if the wavelength changes by one part per million, you would see the uh, output fringe shift by one full cycle. So if the wavelength changes by one part per million, there must be a million, uh, a million wavelengths in this delta L. So you can resolve some fraction of that. Okay? The amount that you can resolve depends on how much noise you have. So how are these things typically used? That's sort of the fundamental property. Um, one way is by scanning one of the mirrors. So a scanning Michelson interferometer, as the name implies, is a Michelson interferometer. The analysis that we just did still applies. You take a laser, you split it, and then you recombine it. Just the recombined beams are counterpropagating. It looks like that. And your detector is going to give you this type of an output. And now we're going to scan the length. So let that be L1. This one will be L1 plus delta L. And we'll, we'll move this mirror with some velocity V. So that delta L is a function of time. So if we move it with constant velocity, then delta L is equal to VT, assuming we start counting uh, at the moment where they're equal. So what we should see then is the fringe pattern shift from dark to light, dark to light. Every time it moves a distance of uh, one wavelength, we should see that pattern repeat. So the time it takes it to move one wavelength is the time it should take the pattern to repeat. And that means the time to move one wavelength is lambda over v. So V over lambda is the frequency at which the, the pattern repeats itself at the output. So if you scan one mirror, the output will cycle through fringes. The rate at which it cycles through fringes, the rate at which that uh, output signal oscillates, we call the modulation frequency, and it's V over lambda. So if you know the velocity at which you're moving the mirror, you measure the modulation frequency, you then know the wavelength. Okay, so here's such a, a system. Electronics are going to drive this uh, corner cube mirror. That's just a retroreflector that ensures that even if the electronics steer the mirror a little bit, it will still reflect the light straight back. And as it's moving, we detect the output. We see that it cycle through these fringes. 
Um, the challenge becomes how to accurately determine the velocity of that mirror. And so one way to do that is start with a wavelength with which you know the wavelength of, send it in, and knowing the wavelength, so here, knowing the wavelength, measuring the modulation frequency, determine the velocity of the mirror, and use that as a calibration for your unknown wavelength. So if you do that, you can relate a wavelength that you're measuring to that of a calibration standard that you used. And it's just going to be the ratio of the calibration frequency to the modulation frequency you observe with the unknown wavelength. OK, so let's say you're measuring the frequency of this uh, waveform. So this is plotted as a function of time. What you're essentially doing is counting the number of peaks in a given amount of time. Right? And your resolution in doing that is going to be 1. Right? You're counting, so you're counting integers. So you have an uncertainty of plus or minus a half measured over some number of cycles. So the fractional resolution is 1 divided by the number of cycles. And the number of cycles that we're going to see is the distance over which we scan divided by the wavelength. So putting that all together, our fractional resolution is 1 over n. n is delta L over lambda. We can write the resolution. Resolution is, or the resolving power is lambda over delta lambda. is just n, which is delta L over lambda. So you followed all that through, you get to this result. The resolving power of this interferometer, or actually any 2-beam interferometer, regardless of the method used to count the fringes, is the path length difference divided by the wavelength. Okay, so you can have a path length difference easily that's on the order of meters. And so for wavelengths that are on the order of microns, you get resolving powers routinely of 10 to the 6. Okay, so you get much better resolving power than you would with a typical grading or prism spectrometer. And so for a resolving power of a million with a grading spectrometer, that's maybe 1,000 lines per millimeter, you need a one meter wide grading, which is possible. Livermore has a few of those, but it's not commercially available. It's pretty rare. Um, you're much more likely to get that resolution using an interferometer. Wait. So delta L is as equal to a whole lambda as when you get another peak? Yeah. So when, when the delta L changes by a wavelength, the pattern repeats because you've What's being plotted here is uh, the phase shift of the two beams that come back. or It's the phase shift that affects the output interference condition. So every time you increase the path length difference by a wavelength, you've increased the phase shift by 2 pi. You only measure phases relative to 2 pi. OK, yes. In this case, you're right, because uh, if delta L is the physical distance we move, the path length difference is twice that. So I was using this picture here, where my delta L was the physical path length difference between them, or the, I guess the optical path length difference between them. And if you want to call delta L the physical distance the mirror moves, 
here, the optical path length is twice that. Okay, so you can call that lambda over 2 if this is the delta L. Okay, so that's an example. Those were examples of two-beam interferometers. Um, we've already seen examples of multi-beam interferometers. The Fabry-Pro cavity, the laser cavity that we've talked about, is an example of a multi-beam interferometer. And so here's sort of a picture of what goes on. You had a homework on this, so uh, you got a chance to investigate this. We've got a beam coming in and an input mirror. And here, my input and output mirrors are on opposite ends of the cavity. Any light leaking through goes through, and some of it will leak through again and be transmitted through the cavity. The rest reflects and essentially gets trapped inside the cavity. And on each reflection, a little bit gets lost out the output. And what's not drawn here is a little bit gets lost out the input as well. And so this coherent sum of all these output beams, uh, depending on the round trip phase, can add up constructively or not. And so the output intensity will have these resonant peaks when the round trip phase is an integer multiple of 2 pi. Right, so we already saw that the distance between these peaks, if you're measuring, well, the difference between the distance between the peaks is called the free spectral range. We typically uh, plot this as a function of frequency, in which case the free spectral range is C over 2L. And the line width of this cavity, so the full width half max of these peaks, can be found once you know the finesse. So the finesse is just the ratio of the free spectral range to the line width. And we had derived the finesse, or you derived in the homework, the finesse of a cavity, where one mirror was perfectly reflective and the other one had a reflectivity of R. So you can very easily generalize that to two mirrors that have reflectivities R1 and R2. And you get this expression. It's exactly what you derived. It's just instead of R, we have R1 times R2. Um, okay, so this can be used as a way to measure the wavelength components of a beam of light. Um, if we write the free spectral range in terms of the wavelength instead of the frequency, so how much wavelength, how much does the wavelength need to change, such that the frequency changes by one free spectral range? Well, the fractional change in wavelength, delta lambda over lambda equals the fractional change in frequency delta f over f. So replacing f with uh, c over lambda and replacing the free spectral range with c over 2L, we get that if the wavelength changes by lambda squared over 2L, the output of the cavity will cycle through one free spectral range. Now, cavity itself has these narrow peaks that can resolve frequency components that are one over the finesse of the free spectral range. So this is how much the wavelength can change in one free spectral range. If we divide that by the finesse, we get the resolving or the resolution in frequency, delta f. And the resolving power then is just 
frequency of the light divided by that. So putting all that together, we get a resolving power of 2L over lambda times the finesse. So let's see, 2L over lambda doesn't look unlike the delta L over lambda we have for 2-beam interferometer. Right? Just in this case, delta L, the path length difference between any two successive beams, is twice the length of the cavity. So we have the 2L. And because we have multiple beams adding up, we get this enhancement factor called the finesse. So a cavity in air can have a finesse of a few hundred. In vacuum, you can get a finesse of maybe a million. So you get a further increase in the resolving power. You get resolving powers on the order of 10 to the 12. Um, so how would you use one of these things? What would an uh, experimental manifestation of this be? There's a device called the Scanning Confocal Fabry Pro. You can buy one of these from Newport or Thor Labs or a number of different vendors. It's drawn here. You can build it pretty easily. It's just two mirrors that form a cavity. One of the mirrors is mounted on a, a piezo transducer that can move the mirror back and forth. And you have some sort of drive electronics here that are going to move that mirror with a linear velocity okay, until it reaches the end of its range, and then you move it back and you repeat. So much like the scanning Michelson interferometer. And as you do that, you're scanning the length of the cavity. So if you have a laser that has an input, so if your input is a laser that has some structure on it, okay, so this is the frequency response of our input field, the Fourier transform of our laser. There's some laser frequency here, and I've drawn it with some additional frequency components, or some additional wavelength components that are closely spaced to that laser frequency. If we pass this through a cavity, and the cavity has a resonance that's narrow compared to that frequency spacing, we can get transmission of one of these components at a time. And so as we sweep it, we're essentially moving. This is the uh, transmission of the cavity as a function of the length of the cavity. So as we scan the length, um, we're essentially moving this transmission peak through various frequencies. And so what we would expect to get out here, if we have a photodetector, measuring the power that comes through. As we scan the length of the mirror, we'd expect to get peaks every time one of these transmission curves lined up with one of these frequency components. And as you keep scanning the mirror, eventually this next 
transmission peak that's one free spectral range away from this one is going to sweep through these. And this pattern will repeat. And so you can look on an oscilloscope at the power coming through as you sweep, as you sweep the uh, mirror with a, a triangle wave or a sawtooth wave. You'll see a pattern that looks something like this. And the way to calibrate this is this distance here physically is going to be some length of time. Right? You're plotting this on an oscilloscope. An oscilloscope draws the voltage as a function of time. Um, and that's the time it takes the cavity length to increase by one free spectral range. So if we're going to plot this as a function of frequency, this distance is the free spectral range, c over 2L. We have a one foot long cavity, a third of a meter. It's a 500 gigahertz free spectral range. So you say, OK, this is 500 gigahertz. You measure how far this is. And compare it to this, and that gives you a frequency separation of those two peaks. You look at the amplitude of the peaks, and that tells you the relative amplitude of the power at those different frequencies. Right, so this distance, say, is one-tenth of this distance, and this is 500 gigahertz, that's 50 gigahertz frequency separation. It means whatever wavelength your laser is at, it's also got frequency components or wavelength components that are at plus or minus 50 gigahertz. Right? You can, again, use the relative change in wavelength is equal to the relative change in frequency to relate a frequency difference to a wavelength difference. Wait. Delta F is, okay, so this distance is called the line width. And in the notes, I call that delta F. And that's the one that I think in Demtroder they call uppercase delta F. That's that to, the equation, to this equation? No, delta F Ah. It doesn't. If this distance is delta f, and I want to know the wavelength difference between these two things, if these two spikes correspond to different wavelengths of light that go through, those different wavelengths have different frequencies. So if I know the difference in frequency and I want to find the difference in wavelength, that's what I'm calling the delta f's here. And th that doesn't have anything to do with the cavity. That's a function of the input spectrum that I'm analyzing. OK, so there's various takes on this uh, scanning confocal Fabry Pro. Um, this one that I drew was one that's useful when you have a continuous input source because you need to change the cavity length as a function of time. And you assume that the source is unchanged during the time of which you're 
scanning the cavity. If that's not the case, if you have, say, a pulsed laser, uh, this isn't useful. But you can do something like, uh, like this. Use a Fabry-Pro with diverging light. And for diverging light, the round-trip path length difference is a function of the angle at which the light is going. Right? If you're going at an angle, so these red rays have a longer round-trip path than these blue rays. And so you can measure the output on a CCD. You can take an image of the output. You'll see rings that you typically see. So you'd see a ring. In this case, you're measuring uh, in space along the radial direction. Each ring represents one free spectral range. Okay. And if you see structure around those rings, that structure comes from structure on the light. So this is the equivalent output for the same, uh, for the same input field that I drew up here where I've got one central frequency and two closely spaced frequencies around it. And really, if you just look along the radial distance and plot the intensity you see, you get the same, same behavior as, as what was drawn there for the scanning and focal fabric pro. So interferometers can have very high resolving power. They can differentiate between two very closely spaced wavelengths, what that means. The downside to interferometers is by having a higher resolving power, they have a smaller free spectral range. Okay, so while you can differentiate between two closely spaced wavelengths, when the wavelengths become too far apart, you can't make sense of them. So again, a physical picture. If, I, if these wavelength components differ by too far, if they differ by one free spectral range of my analyzing cavity, then at the moment when one of these peaks is resonant on one of the cavity peaks, the other laser field, the laser component, will be resonant on the other peak. And I will cease to get discrete uh, peaks my output for those two. For the F under the LF, do we use the free spectral frequency? Well, no, this is, uh, <clears throat> if you want, let me just write where this comes from. For an optical field of frequency F, it will have a wavelength lambda that obeys lambda times F equals the speed. So in vacuum, that speed is C, speed of light. So differentiating this, differentiate the left side, you're differentiating a constant, so you get zero. On the right side, uh, you have lambda df plus f d lambda. And what that tells you then, if you rearrange this, is d lambda over lambda equals minus df over f. So for light with a given wavelength, and therefore a given frequency, if you talk about other components of that light that are separated by a frequency difference, delta f, 
they will have a wavelength difference of delta lambda. Okay, so I have uh, red light from my, from my laser. Let's say it's at 633 nanometers. And I send it into a scanning confocal fabry perot and what I find out is it's not just a single wavelength. It's actually got multiple wavelengths. And let's say that's what the output spectrum of my scanning confocal fabry perot looks like. And it's a one foot scanning confocal fabry perot so that means I have 3 times 10 to the 8 over 2 times 1 foot is 30 centimeters. And this is 500 gigahertz. This free spectral range is 500 gigahertz. And let's say this distance, uh, like I said before, let's say this distance is uh, a tenth of free spectral range. That's just what I observe it to be in my oscilloscope. So however long it takes this, cycle, this pattern to repeat, I measure that number of seconds. I measure this number of seconds, and it's one-tenth as much. What that tells me is that um, the frequency separation of the components in my red laser beam, they're separated by 50 gigahertz. So they're not all at 633 nanometers. They differ from that by 50 gigahertz. Okay, how much difference in wavelength gives me a 50 gigahertz separation in frequency? And that's where I use this equation. So from C equals lambda over F, or lambda F, F is C over lambda. So taking this and plugging in C over lambda for F, I get D lambda over lambda is lambda DF over C. And now my delta lambda is lambda squared df over c, 633 nanometers squared times 50 gigahertz divided by 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second squared. OK, so uh, let me write this as 0.3 times 10 to the 9, because then my giga and my 10 to the 9 cancel. My 50 over 0.3 is like 150. And 633, I guess that's uh, 0.6 times 10 to the 6. So that's like 0.36 times 10 to the 12. And that's going to have units then of uh, Oh, that's minus, sorry. That makes a lot more sense. Meters. And 150 times 0.36 is uh, 50. OK, so if I observe my red light through a scanning confocal Fabry Pro, and I observe, the, I observe peaks around the main peak, 
that are a tenth of the free spectral range. And my interferometer has a 30 centimeter length. Then what I know is that the wavelength components are at 633 nanometers. Or that's maybe their average wavelength, but they're separated by 50 picometers. So I could draw the spectrum of the input light. It would look like this. I can call that 633 nanometers. I can call that 633.05. Right? 632.95. But if it had differed by 10 times that amount, I could no longer resolve the side peaks from the main peak. No, no longer distinguish them. If it differed by 10 times that amount, it would be 500 gigahertz or uh, 0.5 nanometers. So this interferometer is only useful for looking at wavelengths that are within a tenth of a nanometer of some central value. It's not a good way to observe some unknown spectrum uh, somewhere in the visible. For something like that, you'd want a prism or a grading spectrometer. But once you found, so once you found the, the general wavelength of some unknown light source, you might then put it through an interferometer and see if there's some fine structure around that center wavelength. OK, so here's an example of that. Um, using a prism spectrometer uh, with some given parameters and a scanning from focal fabry pro interferometer, can you resolve the hydrogen-deuterium isotope splitting? Remember, I think there was a homework problem where we had to calculate how much, uh, how much frequency difference you got between the, the uh, two different uh, isotopes of hydrogen. Uh, four, and it works out to 124 gigahertz. That sounds about right from the homework we did. For the Balmer alpha line, which was another homework problem, we calculated that was at 656 nanometers, 656.3 nanometers. So now we have two lines that are very closely spaced um, that are both very close to 656.3. How can we measure um, the wavelength of those two lines? We have a delta F, the frequency difference between, well, let's first draw what we expect our spectrum to look like, and then we'll talk about how to measure it. Uh, we expect to have two lines. They might have different amplitudes, because we might have different relative ratios of the, uh, deuter of the isotopes. And OK, let's call this distance delta F. We can call that difference delta F if this is the intensity as a function of frequency, or we might prefer to plot this as a function of wavelength. If I plot this as a function of wavelength, what's the spectrum going to look like? 
Is it going to be the same? It's going to be a yes, we switch. Okay, so if I scale my axis in wavelength, I'll call that delta lambda. And the re relationship between delta alpha and delta lambda is going to be delta lambda over lambda equals minus delta f over delta f uh, over f. Okay, and if I only care about absolute values, I can just take the absolute value and forget about that minus sign. If I only care about the distance between these peaks, I can write this relationship. Okay, so how can I measure what wavelength both of these lines are at? Or each of the lines are at? I don't yet know lambda or delta lambda. What I know is uh, I'm told the values, but how could I measure those? Let's just say I have a light source and light coming out of it. How do I get these values to begin with? And then how do I figure out the wavelength that each of those are at? To measure which of these? Okay, so there's the second one. Okay, so the, the average wavelength is easy to measure using a traditional spectrometer, whether it be a prism spectrometer or a grading spectrometer. Uh, so here's my, here's my light source. I'll collimate it with a lens. I'll focus it down onto a slit. And typically the way this works is you have a grading It's etched onto a curved substrate so that the light the specular reflection goes over here. I care about the diffracted beam. And in litro configuration, the diffracted beam will go straight back. It can go through the same input slit. So the radius of curvature of this is equal to this length L. And then I'd have to have some sort of uh, beam splitter here to separate out the output light. Maybe another lens. Focus that down. And a detector. OK, so this is a grading and litro configuration. So I know this expression holds. And by measuring the angle of this grating relative to the input light, and knowing the properties of the grating and which diffraction order I'm looking at, I then know the wavelength that I'm seeing. And that's going to be with relatively coarse resolution. So let's say this is a 2-inch grating. Or a 50-millimeter uh, grating. 
And let's say it's uh, 1,000 lines per millimeter. That's sort of a typical value. Then the maximum resolving power that I have is m times n. So n is going to be uh, 50 millimeters divided by, uh, I guess, times 1,000 lines per millimeter. So 5 times 10 to the 4 lines. That's how many lines are illuminated. And I'll assume I'm working in the first order. Then my maximum resolving power is 5 times 10 to the 4. So if I observe a particular angle that corresponds to a wavelength of 656 nanometers, I might ask, can I resolve uh, this splitting? Okay, so let's just check that. So I know that. R max is uh, lambda over delta lambda. And in practice, what is this really a re resolving power that I expect to be able to get? So I'll take one third of that. Remember, that's the practical resolving power you can get when you include the limited slit uh, size that you need to have. OK, so. Let me just call that uh, 2 times 10 to the fourth. I want to keep the numbers easy to work with. Lambda is 656.3 nanometers, or delta lambda. So let me solve for delta lambda. So 32 picometers. Is what I get there. So let's see if that's good enough to measure this splitting. The splitting we measured in hertz, the resolution we have in wavelength. So we need to convert this wavelength to a frequency resolution. And for that, we're going to use this relationship. Okay, so now we're going to try to solve for delta f. And since we know the wavelength, not the frequency, I'm going to write the frequency as c over lambda. So delta f is, putting um, the f over here, c delta lambda over lambda squared.
So in frequency, I get that the resolving power is 300 megahertz. Is that sufficient to observe the splitting? So the splitting is 124 gigahertz. I can resolve frequency differences as small as 300 megahertz. So I can resolve that. So I could do, I could just sweep the angle of my grating, record the power coming to my photo detector, and directly trace out this, this trace. Okay. If the splitting that I was trying to observe was less than 300 megahertz. These lines would be within the resolution limit of the, the grading, and I would only see a single line. Okay, and if that were the case, I would then need to sort of zoom in on that line using the interferometer. Okay. In this case, the interferometer is not necessary. OK, so what I'd like to do is just kind of uh, write out a list of things that I think will be important for the final, or for the midterm. So the first is the classical electron oscillator model. This the model where we treated an electron as a mass on the end of a spring. And by treating it classically that way, we were able to derive this Lorentzian line shape for the absorption profile that had a few interesting parameters such as a full width half max that was we called gamma, which came from the damping term in this uh, damped harmonic oscillator, had a central frequency, omega naught, which was the square root of k over m. This was k, and for m, I really should put the reduced mass of my two masses on the end of that spring. And we use this, these relationships to relate some observables, such as what frequency absorption occurs at, to some parameters that we might want to measure, like what is the bond strength, or what is the mass of some material that we're observing. Um, you should be able to draw basic experiments that allow you to measure these different quantities. Okay, so I typically do this on the board. Uh, there's examples in the notes as well. So for example, a laser, maybe some gas, right? and then a spectrometer. Here I'll draw a prism spectrometer. And you might put that whole thing inside of a black box and just call it a spectrometer. But you then need to tune the laser. So there needs to be some adjustment to the frequency whether that be a laser or some other light source. 
Um, and as the frequency is tuned, we would measure with the spectrometer. Um, well, actually, let me, let me redo that. I, we'll start with a white light source and adjust the frequency and measure the, that we're observing, and measure the power that we're observing as a function of frequency. Or alternatively, we could have an adjustable frequency laser in lieu of the spectrometer. And as we adjust the frequency, measure the power. Okay, so that type of diagram you should be able to draw. You should be familiar with energy levels and energy level diagrams. see energy levels plotted on a diagram, you should be able to say intelligent things like this is going to have a higher population than this or this or this due to thermal populations. Um, small energy spacings correspond to things like rotation of molecules. Large energy spacings correspond to things like electronic transitions. And you have some idea from, from the lecture notes of the number, the amount of energy that correspond to those different types of, uh, of quantum state differences. Um, you should be able to say things about selection rules. So if I say this is a uh, 1s state, and this is a uh, 2s state, and this is a 2p state, And I ask you if you ex shine a light into the system and a photon is absorbed and pumps the system into an upper state, you can tell me which of these two upper states it might have gone into. 2p. It can go to 2p because there's a unit difference in angular momentum, whereas 1s and 2s both have zero angular momentum and you can't absorb a photon without absorbing one unit of angular momentum. So that's one of the selection rules. You should be able to say things like that. Um, you should be able to relate these energy levels for lasers. So a laser requires a population inversion. You're never going to get a population inversion from the ground state. That's always the one that has the most population in it. So you need multiple states. You can pump to an excited state have a relatively unpopulated intermediate state and have a population difference or inversion between that upper and intermediate state. You should recognize that that's the energy level difference that will correspond to the energy of a lasing photon and compute the wavelength of the laser based on that. Um, you should be able to say a few things about uh, if I give you a couple different energy diagrams, which of these corresponds to a three-level laser versus a four-level laser which one might have a lower pumping threshold, which one might have a greater efficiency at high power, at low power. 
questions like that? And you should have an understanding of the different um, devices used to measure power and wavelength. That's the chapter we just covered, or this set of notes that we just covered. So if I give you an example of an experiment, it could be, say, this experiment right here. I might tell you something about, OK, we have a certain laser. We're shining through a material. And we're going to measure the power that goes through it. What detector should you use? Here's five choices. You should be able to figure that out based on which of the different types of detectors are appropriate for that power level, which ones are appropriate at that wavelength. Um, you should be able to describe how you can generate light of a certain wavelength. You have a list of different lasers and the wavelengths at which they operate at. You should be able to use that to pick out a laser for an appropriate wavelength. If I give you an example of an experiment that looks like this, we want to tune a laser frequency and sweep it through the visible spectrum and observe the absorption lines, say, of hydrogen. Choose a laser for that experiment. You should be able to find one that is in the visible, is tunable or find some combination of lasers or some sort of uh, nonlinear optics transformation that will allow a laser to be used in that, in that type of experiment. Okay. So you'll see when you look at the practice exam, those are the types of questions that I ask. Um, it's not, in a sense, it's not like the homework. It's not going to be derived theoretical value going to be much more like explain how this experiment works. Um, so you should be thinking about that as you're studying. Any questions? Okay. Uh, so remember, when you get your homework completed, go ahead and uh, email it to me. Or if you have it, if you see me around the building, hand it to me, and I will give you a copy of the solutions.